jump right in. Um, we're going to check in and see who is, is tuning in on Facebook um, once we get into this conversation. But I actually wanted to um, start off our conversation in a way that we really haven't done before, um, where we are giving some context to what we're talking about. Um, and, and then kind of jumping in from there. Um, today's tea talk is, and first of all, our tea talks happen monthly. We began our tea talks in 2020 after our inaugural uh, teaching that took place in July 2020. And our tea talk was akin to a conference, but many topics came up where Black homeschooling families had more information that they wanted to know. And, for, and our subsequent tea talks were monthly panels um, that included homeschooling parents, as well as researchers who weighed in on issues that were pertinent to Black homeschooling families. So we had tea talks in 2020 that revolved around um, how to work with neurodiverse children, how to balance homeschooling and entrepreneurship, and um, how basically how to live your best homeschooling <laughs> life, right? <laughs> so, so we plan to bring those panels back just so folks aren't afraid that it just, you, you know, I, I think y'all like seeing us. We like seeing each other and being able to talk. <laughs> And, and what and what we weren't able to do, because usually it's one of us hosting, we didn't get to see each other much, but we actually want to end our seasons where it's the two of us talking and start our seasons where it's the two of us getting together, um, chatting, and also just processing what just happened, you know? And so um, we have actually been in a, a season of COVID now for almost a year, yeah, almost a year. Can you believe that? I can't believe it. God. Isn't that insane? Yeah. And so COVID-19, global health pandemic that um, really we began quarantining in March of 2020. I will always remember because it was the week I defended my dissertation. I defended on March 13th. And so we started quarantine that week, right? Yeah. And since um, COVID-19, we've seen an upswing. Well, let's just pause. What led to quarantine was the fact that this outbreak now was happening in record numbers. Yeah. And people weren't just getting sick. Folks were passing away, okay? And so quarantining meant that schools were closing, that some of our, for those who homeschooled before COVID, we weren't um, able to access museums and libraries, all public ki kinds of recreation was shutting down. And so in response to this, where for those who were still connected to schools called virtual learning, distance learning, um, learning at home, um, there was a myriad of things that were happening. And so some of the things that, that we see in this visual an upswing in the use of Facebook groups for ideas and community, um, a broadening of homeschool programs and services offered, um, more entrepreneurial parents kind of, um, and teachers, I would say, um, cropping, popping up and offering their services. Then we started to see homeschool co-ops co begin virtually. In fact, in our resource group here, I, um, I believe a, a parent who had joined our group a while ago 
but I've seen them now in, in other groups posting, and I think they posted in our group today, that there's a Black homeschool co-op. And that is what it's called, Black homeschool co-op. <laughs> that now, um, a co-op that literally began online um, in response to COVID. So those are the kinds of things. In addition, the families who homeschooled before COVID, I fall into that group, but I have an older child. But um, those of us who were homeschooling before COVID and were quarantined, all our homeschooling practice has, has gradually changed. Is there anything you would add to the list, Cheryl? Oh, you, you've got, you've got it. But um, yeah, I think that, yeah, this is really important. I think the, the, entrepreneurship has come because those jobs have been lost and out of necessity people that have the ability to um, provide a service or a product are able to become entrepreneurs and find a way to um, still bring money in and I think that's really important I saw um, some a report today that talked about how this um, COVID has um, disproportionately had a, a negative impact on the black community in terms of health disparities, but also in job loss, that it's it's more Black women that have been forced to um, leave jobs. And um, so it's really had a rough impact on us yeah. as a community in general across the country. So it, that that's a, an excellent point. Um, because if we if we look, um, there's that household household hardship. Mm-hmm. Um, Child Trends, which is an organization that's been around for a while. I, when I first started working in nonprofit 20 uh, some years ago, <laughs> Child Trends was actually an organization that I, um, that I, a research organization that I, uh, nonprofit, I was working at Covenant House Washington at the time, and they worked closely with us because we wanted our program to be research-based. Mm-hmm. And so they do a wonderful work in terms of just um, gauging the effectiveness and anything really that's impacting um, children and, and children and programs in that and services that impact children, and they found that 29% of Latino and 31% of Black households with children are experiencing three or more co-occurring economic and health-related hardships as a result of the pandemic. Um, and this is nearly twice the rate among Asian and White households with children. Um, so, so that's that's deep to me, and yes. you know we're continuously hearing um, about now, you know, because the belief was was that um, children were exempt from any type of COVID um, related health issues, right? And so now they're saying the Center for Disease Research and Policy found that a study of 223 patients younger than 20 years old were hospitalized with rare but serious COVID-19 related multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children. So it's always something. And so, you know, um, with this household hardship, um, these health impacts, um, you know, folks are still just trying to make it. And it's always so striking to me because I'm still part of um, parent groups where most of the parents have children in traditional schools. Um, And the things that they're encountering in this distance learning and still um, in in the midst of these things, this household hardship and this health impact, how it's still this push to try to live life as normal when life is anything but, you know, and the reality is, is a lot of people who have joined our resource group and a lot of these homeschooling groups, 
still have children in traditional school spaces. And um, the Northwest Evaluation Association is saying that the results of tests given to nearly 4.4 million United States students in grades three through eight this fall found that most fell short in math. And that seems to be um, a, a continuous issue regarding what's, is this change in how traditional schooling is looking going to impact a whole generation of students? And so this is just the setup for what our conversation is today. I think that um, homeschooling in general is different than traditional schooling or can be, but I think that there have been a lot of convergences now that for those who, of us who homeschooled before, we don't have the resources that we used to have or access to the resources. So there are gonna be some similarities. So I wanted you to kind of pick up from there, like what your experiences have been. And for folks who don't know, you are um, a, an associate professor at the University of Georgia, where you have done prolific work in um, home, on research on black homeschooling families, but it's usually comparative to those children in traditional school spaces because you train teachers. I do, I do. So, um, so this semester, I just so happened to be teaching a course on um, social studies methods. And mm -hmm. it's an interesting time to be studying social studies specifically right now with future yes. teachers, most of whom are white, right. I should say. Um, but when the insurrection happened on January 6th, I started reflecting on my days as a teacher. And um, I was a teacher, a fourth grade teacher, specifically in Connecticut, when the Columbine shootings happened. Oh, wow. And that next day, I couldn't teach. My wow. students were frightened. Wow. And I started thinking about the students that we have that, well, they graduated and this is their first year teaching. And I wondered what was January 6th and 7th like for them, specifically January 7th, really. Um, and so I started reaching out and I'll just share one of my students is teaching fifth grade right here in the same town that I'm located in <laughs> and shared with me that um, they are teaching online. And so the kids are zooming in but at that time, the teachers were expected to be in the building. So that meant that um, they still had morning announcements, if you will. So when it came time on January 7th, the day after the insurrection, for the announcements and the Pledge of Allegiance, one of the fifth grade um, children said to um, my, my former student, who was her teacher, um, I'm not saying that mess in, in oh, a different wow. right? And he said, uh, I understand. You don't <laughs> have to talk about it. I mean, you don't have to say it, but can we talk about it? And they spent the rest of the day, mostly in tears, crying and sharing. They're upset. And, and what they were upset about the most Keep in mind, these are 10, years, 10 year old children. They, they've only been on the planet for about 10 years. Right. But they already knew and understood that if this had been black people doing this at the Capitol, the story would have been different. Mm. They knew that because of what happened in the summer with Black Lives Matter. Mm. And they were upset that there was a difference 
they were hurt and they had come to the point to realize that their country, America, hated them because of their skin color. These are, these are black and brown children that my student is teaching. And so at 10 years old, they understood and had been traumatized by the anti-black racism, the anti-brown racism that exists in this country. They could see it unfolding before them. And they were like, what's the point? So I was really deeply touched by that. And, and long story short, what we are doing at the university, um, I, I pulled my faculty together that are in my department um, really in a, in a righteous rage because something has to be done. And one of the things we're doing is we're gonna have, um, one of my faculty members is really well-versed in art, um, um, art um, instruction, I guess you would say. Like art integration? Yeah, and using it uh, therapeutically and things like that. So we have set up these open studios for the entire fifth grade. All the students have been invited. It's an after-school program. It is online because we're still in COVID. Um, we have invited, so the, the counselor will come and do a prompt with the intention to help students get in touch with their feelings mm -hmm. about certain situations. So the siege at the Capitol being one, racism, those kinds of things. Um, and then we have community artists who are from all over because of the internet. We, we have somebody in California, we have some that are right here, but they're going to do demonstrations. We bought materials for them that they will, that will be delivered to their houses. Um, we're, we're starting next week. And um, during the open studio, they will be able to respond in any way they want to. And we're hoping to be able to tap into the world as they see it. But we're also hoping that the art will be a, a step towards healing. Um, the faculty are working on ways to help them transition into middle school because that's gonna be different. So I just felt like, well, how can we bring these resources to these kids and let them know that we do care about you? There are people right here that um, are willing to pour time and investment in you invest our time in you. And um, I'm hoping to stay with them through high school, to be honest with you, um, in some capacity. So um, just to make sure they, right. they that people do care about them. Um, and, 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 and I think, I think it's important for our listeners to know that when you shared um, this wonderful work that you're doing with teachers, um, and, and who are working with students that I immediately said, that sounds like something wonderful that um, I think parents would love to learn more from you about in terms of how to do this with their children at home, um, yeah. as homeschooling parents. I know in our resource group um, recently, we've had um, really robust conversation with folks um, posting and asking questions about how to talk about um, not just Black History Month, but how to uh, really teach around these issues that are specific, um, that impact Black people, mm -hmm. but recognizing that um, those things that impact Black people and Black history is American history. 
And um, what I've seen in the conversations is that that line of thinking itself is something that's really um, radical and revolutionary for some because we've grown up in in traditional schools that have really um, segmented learning into disciplines as opposed to really recognizing um, the intersections and the interdisciplinary nature of a lot of topics that things aren't just literally pun intended black and white right (laughs) and that you know and and we're not working with decolonize we're trying to decolonize this notion that when we talk about history um in American history that that's not white history um and there are so many other people that exist in this space um and so what does that mean and so I think that that what you explain um, that you're doing with your student teachers is something that, and, and I think that, and I didn't ha- include that in what, in our opening of what COVID has really impacted, but I think for many, it's really um, this whole idea of teacher and parents really taking ownership of that role and recognizing that they are teachers. They are their children's teachers. They're the curators of their learning. And, yeah. and that how all of that looks, they have the power to really kind of dictate that. And I that's think true. that's if there was anything that we could pull positively out of this COVID, um, this year of craziness, <laughs> that's something I think that um, has definitely been revolutionary. So I want to... <laughs> Can we, are you going to talk about the, um, the, the conversation, one of that, that specific conversation that was going on in You go ahead, you go, you go. Because, you know, someone asked about um, how to teach the history without demonizing white people. And I, I have, I went back through all of those conversations. I started to post and I said, no, because I knew we had the space and, um, there's so much to unpack in that question, but, but I think that we have to, I agree with the people who posted, we have to be honest about the way we approach our, our um, teaching of our history. We have to be truthful. And if, if that's one thing that hurts me the most about public schools mm-hmm. is that we haven't been honest, even with something as supposedly benign as Christopher Columbus. We don't tell the truth. And we still expect them to say that Christopher Columbus discovered America. That's wrong. And, you know, it, it, he didn't. There were people here. And so we, we shouldn't even let those words come out of our mouth anymore, you know? But these are things that certain folks want to hold on to. And I want you to know that there are materials out there whatever age level your child is, that you can teach them the truth about it and not worry about offending anybody because it is the truth, okay? It is what happened. We don't need to sugarcoat what happened. And I wish you could see this stack of books that are sitting beside me. I'm not going through all of them. I promise I will take pictures, post on them or whatever, but I don't know. You know what? You're going to turn off your um, filter? Yeah, I think I'm going to pick, how do you? I'm going to turn that thing off so you can see these books. How do I turn that off? Oh, here I go. (laughs) Nope, that wasn't it. (laughs) Hold it in front of you. Hold it in front of your chest and we'll be able to see it. Oh, now I got it. Okay, I think you can see it better this way. Okay, so this is a, this is, um, 
Well, that's not very good, is it? Ronald, Ronald Takaki wrote a book for adults called A Different Mirror. In that book, he chronicles the history of a different, different sets of people, Native Americans, Mexican Americans, Irish Americans, Japanese Americans. And when you read it as an adult, you can see the patterns in history, the oppression that each group faced, including African Americans. But what he did then, he didn't stop there. He wrote this one for young people. It's a history of multicultural America. So he broke it all down for children to be able to understand these patterns. This is a wonderful textbook for teaching American history because you're gonna get a multicultural perspective, not just our story, but other people's stories of how they experienced coming into America. And I think it's a good place to start. I also wanna encourage you, wherever you are in America right now, when you're teaching your children about the history, it doesn't have to be like this is what, if like, let's say you're in California and you're talking about the civil rights movement and what happened in Washington DC and it seems so far away. There are local histories and people have taken the time to write books about what was happening in your part of the world during that time period. This is one for where I am right now in Athens, Georgia, a story untold. You see, it says black men and women in Athens history. So I can, along with the American history, tell you about what some people were doing right here related to that. And I wouldn't stop there. I did this for my own children. So I'm not telling you anything I didn't do. In addition to the local history, we should be talking about what was happening in our family? What were grandma and grandpa doing when during Jim Crow era? You know, those are, knowing who your people are is very important. It's empowering to know that we, what we've been through. And the way you teach it for black children is you can talk about, even talking about slavery, that we represent the strength Right. That was that was the, the, the people who survived all these atrocities. So it's from a position of strength. And this is what they are doing and what they've done. What are you going to do? And that's the question I had to my own children. And so th that's just a little bit. And even the little itty bitty kids. Um, I don't know if I can get my hands on it. I have so many books. There's a book called Clack, Clack, Moo, Moo. Sounds silly. Beautiful book, <clears throat> very few words. Some cows are protesting with, they happen to have a typewriter and they are protesting because it's too cold and they want the farmer to bring out some blankets and the farmer says no. So they type up another message and another one. And finally they say, okay, no blankets, no milk. And guess what happens? The farmer comes out with blankets. And so they see the power of working together they, through this very simple book of what protesting in a very um, peaceful manner is. They get the idea of what collective bargaining is um, and how you can advocate for yourself with people. So those are just some of my ideas. Again, those are great ideas. I want to actually acknowledge some of the folks that are viewing. Um, okay. one, one of, you know, uh, um, our girl, Lanissa James, 
is is there. Um, oh, she says, yes, Black Homeschool Co-op. We had mentioned Black Homeschool Co-op earlier. Um, Phyllis Smith Asanyabi. Yeah. Um, she said, hi, Drs. Khadija and Cheryl. Hey, hey. Um, but Laura Smothers, who actually is one of our authors in our, in our forthcoming book, yes. actually made a comment about um, Rebecca... Um, Stefoff's book and she was she said something that I was going to bring up about um, Zen's Howard Zen's People's History of the United States which yeah. I recommend highly yeah. it's a free resource um, online I've used it um, off and on for I don't know how many years with my daughter um, but also I've pulled things from that when I've taught some of my college students mm-hmm. um, and so everything that you say is 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 very worthy of, I think, incorporating into your homeschool and practice. I would also say that when I teach, I have a, um, an arts history class that I've taught for college students and adapted for younger um, students. And I teach art history um, through an, an African lens. And so it's really literally starting in Africa as opposed to how arts history is traditionally taught through a very European classical view. And if you start um, with Africa, you don't just get art history, you get history of, um, you get history, history of Mm -hmm. everything. And it becomes very multidisciplinary. And it's actually very fun. um, If you you look at it as, um, as something, where you're learning also as the as the teacher and I think that's what gets lost a lot in translation for those who are just beginning their homeschooling journey is that this homeschooling journey is as is as much of a learning experience for the parent as it is for the children and there is never I think many that are coming into this practice believe that those of us who did it before COVID somehow we just knew, <laughs> we, we know everything that we're teaching and we knew everything that we teach, we are teaching in advance that we didn't read books like you're sharing with us that yeah. is that no research or any type of preparation. And I think that's why it's often a call for what curriculum are you, you using or what, because I don't think that it, it, it is really clear for a lot of people that the curriculum is your life. You yeah. could you can make it up as you go along, but it can also be something that you are engaging in as a as so building up your learning um, right. portfolio, just like what you expect for your children. That's right. That's and, and and you know, and I think that you're just given great context on how if you don't know, you go and you ask someone who does. You read a book. That's right. It's right. <laughs> too much information out there for us, right. and I think. I think too, you, you can't rely on, um, even if, even, even if you are a public school teacher, I mean, a parent or a private school parent, you can't rely on that traditional school to do the teaching for you. You have to do more when you're African-American. You think about Japanese American children. Do you know they go to school on Saturdays? To go at our after school for, to learn Mandarin, to learn the rituals associated with their culture. You look at um, Jewish children, they go to learn, go to learn um, Hebrew and their traditions. So our children need that too, they, because they're not going to get it in school. And, and if you're homeschooling, then you can base your schooling on it. You know, you, you have that freedom, but we need to understand who we are, what we've been through. Um, I want to show you one more book. Then I never learned, I didn't learn this until I got my third degree. 
This book, <laughs> A Light in the Darkness, is a story about how um, slaves in learned in secret. And it's all about the pit schools, about African slaves going out into the woods, digging ditches in the middle of the night to learn how to read. Yes, yes, yes. It was that important to them. You think about the children who are struggling as readers and you, you read something like this to them or with them. They thought reading was so important that they risked their lives and dug ditches and went out in woods in the middle of the night. We don't have to do that today, right? <laughs> but I mean, you can just talk about these kinds of things with kids. And I mean, there's so many, there's so many really wonderful books that can be shared. And, and, and I think the, the, the message and what I'm hearing you say in response to that conversation that we had in our group isn't so much uh, an emphasis on this white lens and this concern for white people, because what, what I heard in the question is that it is not so much, and, and I, because I, I repeatedly was like, I don't like the word demonized, but what I, I was hearing her to say is that we have friends in our family who are white people. We have, we're in a all white environment. So yeah. the children have to navigate. And I think that's really interesting. I think that raises a larger issue that I don't think we discuss enough is is how much we do at home with teaching our children how to um, code switch and how to um, really create this identity when they're in different groups. And I think now is the time for us to really start having conversations in terms of how healthy that is yeah. and how much about it is a, a relic or a remnant from the years of enslavement Mm -hmm. of Jim Crow, um, of knowing the, re the reality in many of our workspaces that um, people are paying attention to our nonverbals, you know, our so-called attitude, all these things. But how much of it is based on past trauma versus really being safe today, really being um, able to navigate? Because I think that even if we look at homeschool as a practice, how much are we teaching our children to deal, to teach them how to be of service to their community and other black people versus how to assimilate and integrate into a white world and a white culture? And I think I, when I heard that question, I, I, you know, I like other people immediately responded to well, you know, why are we concerned about what white people think when we talk about Black History Month, right? <laughs> but I think it was a lot of subtext. And I think it really was an honest mm -hmm. ask about homeschooling in general, because how many of us are homeschooling um, free, you know, as free people yeah. versus we are just continuing a process that tends to happen in traditional schooling where it's focused on assimilative behavior, where um, it, it's, it's, it's really not in reference to anything cultural or anything beneficial yeah. to the, the black community in general. What do, you, what do you think about that? Do you think I'm just, I'm reading too much into it? What, do you, you know, what are your I, thoughts? I think that um, part of it too is this idea when we go out in the world, this, well, not the world, I'll just say um, America. One of the challenges, the greatest challenges we have, I think, is that whiteness has been centered completely, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So if you aren't white or like white, it is um, 
it can, life can be challenging for you here mm -hmm. for a lot of people. Um, and so when you ask that question, how do I teach black history without demonizing white people? Again, you're centering the white people. Right. And how do we, can we, why can, why do we have to keep doing that? Why can't we just tell the story, tell what happened? It's not, it's not the truth. Teach the truth about what happened. Because if you, and I'm sorry, my mother was a librarian, so I'm going to keep relying on books. But if you read this book. You never Henry, have to apologize about that. <laughs> if you read things like this, Henry's Freedom Box, you will notice that Henry, this is the African slave who mailed himself. This is a true story. He put himself in a box, but think about it. He couldn't do that alone. When you look in the pictures, I don't know if I can, it's white people helping him. Can you see that? Yes. So by teaching the truth with these kinds of tools that are showing you that not every white person agreed with slavery. There are white abolitionists that you can learn about. So you don't have to worry about um, demonizing anybody. Teach the full truth. Teach the full truth. White people had a role in abolishing slavery. Not everybody that was white wanted slavery. Agreed. Not everybody that was white agreed with it. So teach the truth. I mean, it, to me, it's, it's um, I don't know, it's become second nature now mm -hmm. to teach the truth. So I don't have to worry about offending anybody. If I show the pictures of the civil rights era, people marching, and the, the, the pictures of Black Lives Matter people marching, what we're going to see is it's not just Black people marching. This is, and, and if you teach about civil rights, it wasn't just to benefit Black people. Many groups have subsequently been able to benefit from the laws that came out of the 1965 um, civil rights movement. So teach the truth. It wasn't just about us. It benefited many people and many people were on board with it. That's good advice. And I will say that I, the value of homeschooling for, for our family has been because we can center black people. <laughs> and that is not a concern that we have at all. Like I, you know, that has, that has not even come up in conversation because I feel that there is so much heavy lifting around mm -hmm. even being able to center us in our own history. I know that um, this is, this movie that's out now, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing it because I really love Daniel Kaluuya and um, I forget the other, Lakeith, I, I forget his last name, um, on the life of Fred Hampton mm. was um, a 22 year old revolutionary with the Black Panther Party. And mm. some of the reviews I'm reading say that it, it tends to focus on the person who was the informant. So still not being able to, you know, and so I, 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 I bring that up because I feel like that is often um, where we are relegated in our own history. <laughs> We're the yeah. side conversation in our own history. Yeah. So yeah. I would never, so personally, I, you know, I don't ever feel the need at any point to, and, 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 and I didn't say this in the thread in the group, but the white people that I am, that are in my circle or that I associate never require of me to, um, 
to give a damn about their feelings when it comes to um, anything about history or anything about parenting mm-hmm. or in this country, knowing and being honest and truthful of what what this country is and, and what our existence has been. And I, I feel like a lot of this, um, we talk about unschooling, we talk about de-schooling. Mm-hmm. A lot of that is for the parents, more so than the, the children. I know when my daughter, she, you know, she's been in and out of schools and oftentimes I have to um, do the routine thing for her because before she gets her, her own self-regulation going. But for parents, for us, um, I think we are the ones that really benefit from the de-schooling and the unschooling and the, you know, it's so many trendy words now, Cheryl, decolonizing, yeah, yeah. oh Lord, yeah. decentering, right? But all of that is about where are we focusing? Where is our lens? Mm-hmm. And it is so hard for us to, um, to zoom in on ourselves, And yeah. And it's only through like when we see trauma and we see other people advocating for themselves and not being met with violence that we, I think it becomes clear just how programmed we we are to not stand up and speak up for ourselves. I think the insurrection that happened in January was so, so um, it was such an interesting perspective that, you know, I, I heard and read conversations around because you know the the consistent one was like if that was us you said it if that was us we would have been under the jail right or killed or anything mm-hmm. um but but the re and we've seen that with george floyd we saw the, how the police responded the 10 year old fifth graders knew that right right so right so if at 10 years old you know that just imagine just think about that 10 years on the planet and this is that's what they were mad about right right so the layers and layers of that on top of us as as older people you know 30 and up and and so now we are taking ownership of our our children's education bringing them into the home or they're here now because of covid and so now you know and i and i think it just you know, all this complaints that folks have of schools or what have you, it really forces you as a home educator now to face your own demons. And what have you internalized? What have you accepted as truth? What do you now believe um, now that the power is in your hands? What are you now going to do with um, the freedoms of teaching your children what it is that you think they should know? And I would tell you, you know, my daughter is 17. She's in her final year um, as a high schooler. We've been doing the whole college thing. And even the whole college thing, you know, folks have asked, like, if you're homeschooling and you all are so, you, you, you know, because they, they have this impression of me that I'm like, I don't know, a hippie chick. I don't know what it is that folks, <laughs> but they, as a rule breaker mainly. And so they look at me as taking her out of school as being anti-authority. So now why am I trying to get her into college? And I am very honest with telling people that I want her to have um, done what, you know, do these these certain things so that she can do whatever it is that she wants right mm-hmm. nothing is mandatory but she said i do, do not want to be in college for four years and so that's why we did dual enrollment is because okay well let's see you mm-hmm. know 
do college now early. And so now she's, you know, she'll have 60 credits. So she'll only have to do two more additional years of college, but it, it is, I will admit it is a fear that if she just doesn't cross those T's and just have some, these things under her belt, Mm -hmm. that she will be victimized or be left out of opportunities. Mm -hmm. That is a colonized mentality. Mm-hmm. And I'm honest about that. Yeah. Um, but it's also an awareness that free ain't really free mm-hmm. um, unless you have certain flexibilities. And and I think for every homeschooling parent, it is an assessment as to what is your boundary? What, who are you living for? Who are you teaching? What are you teaching your children for? What is the outcome you want to see? What, how do you, what impact do you want to have on their life experience? Because everything that you do as a parent is going to, is going to tie dye them. It's going to imprint. You're imprinting them. So what do you want to imprint on them? And that's just, it's not just so simple to say, um, we're gonna teach you your history, you have to make the determination as to what that history is. Mm-hmm. In my research, when I was interviewing these children that were, um, that were dual enrolled, and I asked that question about culture, right? The responses kind of ran the gamut with these children as to what they even um, thought of as being culture like one one child was like afrocentric my mama had me in afrocentric co-ops i'm able to talk about the da, 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 da and i'm actually quite disgusted when i talk to people at my college and they don't know what the heck i'm talking about right so that's one child where another child is talking about culture in terms of relationships that they hear their parents talking about how to treat the black person at work as opposed to how they're treated by the white. So the relationships, understanding that there's a racial difference. So that in itself means so many different things. So we really, you know, getting to that point where you're even deconstructing that for your family, I think is some deep and powerful work that a lot of us don't even know where to begin with, if that makes sense. Yeah. Does that come up for your teachers? Like, do you have teachers, black teachers in particular, who struggle with what they're constrained to do um, for their schools, but also what their identity, you know, it, it, it kind of conflicts with their identity as black people? The, the young man that, um, that had the student say, um, I don't wanna stay, say the Pledge of Allegiance, is an African-American male student, one of only three African-American nails that I've had in 17 years, by the way. No way. 17 years of teaching at UGA and I've only had three black men. Wait a minute, can we just pause on that? In my undergraduate program, I should say, yeah, yeah. So are you talking about in your class or in Mm -hmm. the program itself? In, well, I don't know about the whole program, it's probably not many, it's not, it's, yeah, I bet it's the whole program. Wow. Yeah, it's mostly, you know, that's where I am, right? Mm-hmm. But um, he is African-American, he's teaching um, Black and Latino students, um, but he um, has been teaching for six years, and he, when I approached 
him with doing something with the kids. And I'm, I'm the one who wanted to not get him in trouble, so to speak. And he said, Dr. Fields, don't worry about that. I've already proven myself. I've got a relationship with my um, administrator. As long as she knows what's going on, we're good. I said, okay, <laughs> so he's, he's rock solid. But I would imagine, um, like I don't even have to imagine, his principal's response to how to talk about the insurrection she called them to teach us together and said, don't bring it up unless they bring it up. Wow. So she felt some kind of constraint and she's African-American. So we have administrators, we have teachers. We're, you know, the thing is, go, you know, with that question, how to respond to that question about how to teach history without demonizing people, white people. We're all going to respond to that differently based on where we are, what our understanding is. Exactly. Um, also, you talked about imprinting. Whatever your lens is that's imprinted on you is going to be part of that response. And so, you know, his administrator in this moment felt more constrained than he did as the teacher right. of only six years of, of teaching. He knew he couldn't teach that day. He knew he had to talk to them, let them get it out. You know, um, very, and he's very intuitive and in tune to his students. Mm -hmm. um, and he knows them well. He knows mm -hmm. what they need at this time of year, particularly. So, yeah, no, yeah, I think it, it depends on what's been, in, like you said, imprinted on you. If you're more worried about getting in trouble, then you're going to let that guard you. But if you, you know, from your research with um, homeschooling mothers, and you, you, you've done a, a few studies now, like you've done a lot, yeah. does, has that come up, um, particularly with your, your recent book on, on single mothers who are homeschooling, mm -hmm. um, did any of them speak to this uh, ever being confounded, or even if they didn't have any confusion of where to start, what that practice looked like when it came to um, cultural and historical teachings from a Black perspective? No, I wouldn't say they were confounded by it. Um, okay. I One of the questions I asked everyone was, did you look at the Georgia uh, or your state standards? And um, the majority of people said no, <laughs> because um, they were more concerned about their own children. Right. And then when, when they finally did look at them, they realized that they were beneath what they were already doing with their right. children. Right. And that's when I teach my teachers, that's what I tell them about this. I just said it this past Wednesday to my social studies students. We started <laughs> unpacking these standards. And I said, I want you to understand this represents the bare minimum of what you should be teaching. Right, right. This is not all that you should be teaching. Right. And so, in Georgia, if I'm if I'm mistaken, if I'm not mistaken, um, in Georgia, there is no portfolio review. There's nothing where any no. government official is saying this is how you need to homeschool. No, the only thing they have to do is once your children um, reach third grade, your children have to be tested on some sort of standardized test. But parents get to pick which test that is. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And there's nothing in the laws written about your kids having to pass at a certain you know level on that test you right. just have to test and right. most of the parents don't even use the georgia we have one a test a state criteria reference kind of test and it's um 
it's based on those standards, the Georgia standards. Mm -hmm. And most parents that I, I had 46 parents and the majority of them did not use the Georgia test. They used the Iowa test of basic skills. Oh, wow. Okay. Because they wanted to see the norm referencing. So for children in that same age group, how does my child, what percentile does my child represent? Right. That was what they were more interested in instead of the Georgia standards. So really, yeah. I know. Um, yeah. do, did you when you did your study for your book? Were all of your um, the people in your study from Georgia? Those were yeah. Okay. They, you know, now some of them were born somewhere else, but they were living in Georgia and homeschooling in Georgia gotcha. at the time of the study. But gotcha. you've you done uh, your first study that you did was with women from all over, right? It was mostly Georgia still. Okay. Um, but I did have a few states represented, uh, other states, but mostly, mostly it's been Georgia. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I know I'm, I'm in Maryland and um, we have to do a portfolio review and there've been a, a few changes. I'm in Prince George's County in particular in Maryland. And from when I started 12 years ago to where we are now, there, I've seen some slight changes <laughs> where <laughs> it's, it, it's been more of this push to aligning um, when they do the portfolio review, it's really, and even the, the document that they give you after you go to, through the portfolio review looks like a, a report card. <laughs> it looks like it's broken down into the different subjects. They want to make sure that you have assets that demonstrate you've, you're, you're touching on all these subjects. And so, but they, you know, it, they're not really specific with, you, you can choose to look at the standards that they offer, that they have for the schools and use them, but um, they just want to see that there's robust learning, quote unquote, whatever that is. But um <laughs> But I, I think that, you know, with that in, in mind and how they are letting you know that this is how they're dictating or determining that you're homeschooling effectively, mm -hmm. um, it's, it, it, gives this, it, it, it gives the impression that parents are limited in, in what subjects they can, can implement. And, and again, so I, I'm saying, again, I'm, I'm just trying to push this idea that no matter the subject mm -hmm. you can talk about black history mm -hmm. in every single black culture black mm -hmm. life the black experience in every single every subject mm -hmm. every single thing we're connected to everything black history we, you know when life I, history, when human history I, when i was teaching i had um a fabulous couple of really fabulous principles but one in particular really encouraged us Yes, celebrate Black history, but please teach from a multicultural perspective. So when you're doing your unit on science, I mean, the what, not, um, simple machines, please include inventors who are Black, Latino, Asian American, like include everybody and make sure you're doing that all year long. Right. And, you, and you can very easily do it, but you've got to do some research. You right. can't teach what you don't know. Right. So, you know, you need those resources that teach you about the marvelous, marvelous inventors so that you can make those connections between simple machines like the lever and the pulley and what um, has been invented by Black people, you know, or, you, you, or whoever. You, 
you have shared some wonderful books, but do, do you have some recommendations for parents who are home educators in ways to be, you know, beyond re reading these textbooks um, and reading the children's books to their children? Do you have any specific activities or maybe starter um, activities to develop a practice on teaching or preparing? I think that that kind of gets lost in translation. And, and I'm asking you this not to prepare a parent necessarily as you would a teacher because teachers in addition right. to teaching have to also be aware of the bureaucracy in which they work in, right? That's That's <laughs> but are, are there certain, is there a, a, a practice, is there a way that you recommend a parent begin to build up um, themselves as a resource and while in the midst of all their other parenting duties that they have, what a good place to start if they're a novice? I, you know, I, that's a great question. I think it goes back to what you were saying about having to unlearn. I think we, you know, one of the challenges when you, and we did a tea talk on this um, last year, actually. Um, when you first start out, you might think you have to replicate school and most of the people that know will tell you don't replicate school. Um, yep. I, um, I was asked to do a fireside chat with some millennial, black millennial um, home educators. They had little people uh. a couple of years ago. They, and we ended up with the first they wanted me to come teach and I, I, I didn't have time to do that. Um, and we ended up with this fireside chat because they wanted me to tell them how to set up assessments to know where their children are. And I, I kept trying to get them to understand, and this is, so this is my long, my, my answer to your question is, you know your child already better than any teacher ever will. You've been with them from birth. And if you've been observing and watching your child, you know what they like to do. You know what they're capable of you know their shortcomings, you know what they need, you, you know already. And if I were homeschooling, I wouldn't worry so much about a, a particular curriculum. My concern would be, what is my child interested in and how can I find natural connections between what my child is interested in and what they need to be learning sort of um, what they want to learn, what they um, should be learning. And I'm using those words loosely. You, you have a guide. You kind of know what, you can look at the standards. You can look at wherever you want to look at what second graders should be doing, for example. But how do I make this interesting for my child? Mm -hmm. And then, and I guess this is why I became a researcher. This is also how I taught. Um, we, I was an inquiry-based teacher. So what questions do you have about, you know, if we're supposed to be learning about uh, the woodland Native American tribes of Connecticut, which is where I'm from, what questions do you have? What do you want to learn about them? Mm -hmm. How are we going to find out? How do you want to find out? Yep. And then we go do those things. Yep. And then we, we celebrate our learning. We might create a mural, we might um, put on a museum to dis and create artifacts of our learning and have, invite the third graders to come. You know, if, we're, if I was teaching fourth grade, um, 
you know, we do something creative, have parents come to see what we've learned and we celebrate our learning along the way. And then we move on to the next thing, building on what we know, right? Excellent. That's excellent. You know, I, I think inquiry is really powerful because in that process of learning, you're also teaching people, young people, how to learn. Yes. Yep. I, I agree. I, and everything you say, so you said if you were a homeschooler, but you're, you're an educator and I will tell you that I've applied those very principles in my homeschooling practice. I'm working with young people um, currently in a, a media program that I run um, through the nonprofit that I, I work for. And um, yesterday <laughs> I, I had posted this on Facebook yesterday. I had taught them um so they work on a television show, but they also are learning different media tools. And yesterday, um, as an icebreaker, I wanted to introduce them to the free um, tool Canva, but use it to make a mission board. And I had mentioned mission boards um, here. I had posted a video that I did about mission boards for homeschooling and none of them had used Canva. I did a, a short demo. They were able to do that the mission board and animated in 15 minutes. Woo! And so that is me piggybacking off of what you said as to what they like, because all of these children had to fill out an application to be part of this program. And they all were emphatic. I like media. I like yeah. media. Yeah. So it's a group of like-minded children who are emphatically like media mm-hmm. and who like hands-on. And so that speaks to 15 minutes. And that's another thing about this homeschool practice is that you don't really have to go through all of the issues with classroom management, you know, with such a large class. If you are doing what you said, finding what your children like, Mm -hmm. um, it, the learning happens quickly. You're not, it it, it does not mirror a traditional school eight hours. And the kids are owning their own learning. Yes, I didn't have very many behavior problems either because kids wanted to be in the class. They wanted to come because they they had voice and they had choice in their learning. I didn't have to beat them over the head with a bunch of facts. Right, right. No, I I would never do that anyway, but I'm just saying. (laughs) You had to put the disclaimer out that you don't go around beating children in the head. We know, Cheryl, we know you know. You know, but there was nothing boring. Right. There was nothing boring in my classroom. And in fact, most of the time, when you walked in my classroom, you couldn't really tell what subject was being taught. And you might not be able to find me because I was down on the floor with some kids somewhere probably. I love it. So those were my favorite teachers, the ones that would sit on the floor and get down with us. And I'm trying to teach these young students who say they want to be teachers now. We don't all, who said that everybody has to be doing the same thing at the same time? Right. Where does that come from? Yep. <laughs> well, that's that's that traditional schooling that for some of us have 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 had those experiences. And it's so interesting that even if that experience was negative, that we still try to recreate that at first in our homeschooling practice. So, so, so we we have now come to the end of our hour. Oh I, want, I know we can just you and I, we can just talk forever. Um, but I wanted to give a um, 
special shout out to all of the folks that are making fantastic points in our comment section on Facebook. Um, Renee Cooper, she says, I love that celebrating what you've learned. Lanissa James said, kids who love education. Yay! Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> and she also <laughs> says that, she, you know, to parents, you know your child better than any teacher. And then we have Phyllis who says that research skills are crucial for homeschooling parents. Now, I can't say that enough, is that yeah, you, can, yeah. you can pop up in every Facebook group that you want asking for a curriculum or asking for something, but the research that it, research extends outside of just being, finding what other folks are doing and research is asking your children what they like that's right you know research is paying attention and observing your children and seeing what what they excel in i find that sometimes it's hard for children to even be able to articulate that sometimes as to what they like or what they're good at because again that's a comparative look and what you're good at because so many children a lot of kids are hard on themselves and they rate they rate what they're good at based on how they do it in comparison to another child as opposed to what they excel in or like and so research could really just being having those conversations with your children in an intentional manner where it's not just a cursory glance or a cursory conversation or something it's something where you are making your child realize that it's important for me to know this information because I want to tailor our experience to what it is that you tell me and so um you know I just it's five o'clock um (laughs) we think we think everyone every time that we do a tea talk we try to keep it to an hour but we encourage you really to be part of our um our community continue to share i want to give shout outs to some of our our regular posters in our group from sherry meta um phyllis to shona um yolanda it's a it's a bunch of you who regularly post and contribute to our group um sharing information that is meaningful and not just something great to read but something that's really important and impactful. And I and I hope that you continue to invite others to the group. We have an announcement. Um, we have a date for our, our second annual virtual teaching. Um, do you remember what the date is? Because <laughs> I don't. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm the queen. I'm the queen of bringing up something. And then forget. I, I know. But we're going to actually post it. We're going to, how about we post it in the comment section so that I give you an incentive to read it. And, we, and I'm going to be posting it um, on Monday with more information um, and sponsorship packages should be available for those who want to sponsor the event. But we're so excited um, that we're going to be um, having our teaching again. And we hope that it coincides with the release of our forthcoming book. Yeah. You can learn more about Black Family Homeschool Educators and Scholars at Black Family blackfamilyhomeschool.org thank you everybody and bye to bring uh, share ideas for our next tea talk too yes 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 if you have ideas for our next tea talk let us know we're gonna have a forum for that on in our resource group all right Bye. Bye. bye bye girl